We are going to be in Acts chapter 18. Again, Josh Brethel is going to lead us. So grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 18. We'll be in verses 1 through 11. And please stand as we give honor to God's Word. Acts 18 verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was the, of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to him, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. God's Word for God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. That through Your Word, we know the Gospel. We know what You're like. We know what we're like. And we recognize that we need this Gospel. The, the reality that Your Son has come on a rescue mission to save us from our sin, to take our sin upon Himself to give us His righteousness. I pray that You'd help us see that this morning. Speak to us through Your Word. Shape us into the image of Christ and be glorified among us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. As Aaron said, my name's Josh and I'm uh, a member at Windsor Community Church. It's, it's good to be back with you guys at the crossing. I was here a couple months ago, had the opportunity to preach. We have the privilege of serving alongside you as fellow Crossway folk, but we also have the privilege of loving this church from the east side of the highway. We, we love the crossing and what God's doing here in Fort Collins through you, and so we pray for you often. I wonder if you notice, like I do, that we as Christians are good at using our own language. We have words that we use often, that I think people outside our spheres may not always understand. And that's not always a bad thing, right? We, we speak the Word of God often, but there are often times I think we use words and we, we don't even necessarily know what we mean when we say them. They're used so often, they mean so many things that ultimately I think they run the risk of meaning nothing. What do I mean? I believe that there's a way that what you mean by gospel-centered here at the crossing in Fort Collins, Colorado, might mean something different to a church in Birmingham, Alabama, or maybe in a suburb in Denver. When you say disciple-making, do you mean uh, a lifestyle? Do you mean a program? Do you mean a process? Right? 
Now, I believe language creates culture. Words are important. The way we, the way we say things and, and what we say forms and shapes the people we become. But I also believe if we don't define our terms and really consider from a biblical perspective what we're saying with those words, they can lose their power to affect and shape who we become. Said another way, when a word like disciple-making or gospel-centered means everything, it, it ultimately means nothing. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing that with some of these popular buzzwords today in the church. So this morning, I want to consider what we mean when we talk about the word mission. What are we saying when we say that Jesus was sent on mission, and he, as He calls us to follow Him, we too are sent on mission? I want to look at one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Acts 18, 1-11. This passage that's, that's deeply theological, very practical, and helps us understand beautifully the call that we as Christians have as we're sent on mission. In 1998, a movie called Saving Private Ryan came out in theaters. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen it. It's a It's a powerful war film set during World War II. In the movie, there's a team of army rangers who are given the mission to rescue Private James Ryan from the front lines. See, Private Ryan had three brothers who had already died during the war. And the Secretary of Defense was not going to allow a family to lose all four sons. And so he commissioned this team to fight their way to the front line, save Private Ryan, and bring him back to his family movie then plays out in dramatic fashion, right? You've seen it. There, there's epic war scenes, tragic losses of life, countless acts of bravery and heroics, all to save one soldier. By the end of the film, when all hope seems lost, this group of army rangers, as they always do, I was an army ranger, accomplishes the mission, and they save Private Ryan. Now, Many of you probably enjoy these types of movies. They're inspiring. They, they stir up a desire in us to be brave and courageous, to fight evil, to seek, to, 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 to even cause us to seek to find something epic in our lives. Right? I know quite often after watching one of these movies, I find myself hoping, even looking, for some of that excitement, some of that adrenaline, that this type of movie portrays. And so I have to confess, when, when I start thinking about a sermon where I'm going to teach on mission, my first inclination is to talk about mission in categories such as death-defying, epic, larger than life. And I feel this pull to find stories of missionaries who braved the wild, who forsake everything, and who've given their life to the mission of God. But as I settle into the New Testament and I read this favorite passage of mine in Acts 18 and I let the the Word of God inform what mission is for the life of the believer, I tend to start to see things a bit different. I start to see that though God absolutely sends some to brave the wild, that He absolutely calls others to forsake everything, He even allows some to give their lives for the Gospel. What is most common What is most prevalent, what I believe God does most often is use the ordinary lives of His people to accomplish His extraordinary 
purpose in this world. So what I'm saying is that I think most of our Christian lives will probably end up looking a bit more like the movie Driving Miss Daisy than it will Saving Private Ryan. Now I need to say, I recognize starting a sermon on mission like that is a bit risky. Calling out the fact that Christian mission is far more normal than an epic war movie comes as a massive relief to about half of you in here and as an utter disappointment to the other half. But I would encourage you to stick with me this morning because I believe we're going to see the beauty and power of being a mission-centered church and a people. And for the half of you that are relieved, I think you're going to be drawn to see the supernatural enormity of our mission. And for the half of you that are disappointed, I think you're going to see the extraordinary power of the mission as part of an ordinary, normal life. So what we're going to see through our text this morning is that God has called the crossing church and every other believer to a mission. He's called us. He's, he's set us apart. He's commissioned us for a mission. And what we're going to see through Acts 18, if you're note takers, you can write this down, is that God's mission is ordinary, number one. Number two, it's gospel-centered. Number three, it's communal. And four, it's supernatural. Four points from our text this morning. God's mission for us is ordinary, it's gospel-centered, it's communal, and it's supernatural. Now, before we jump into our text, I want to set a bit of context for us. We're jumping right into the middle of Acts. And so we need to refresh our memories of, of what's happening in this book. Luke, the author, is recording the Acts of the Apostles after the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Right? He's, he's recording the history of the Christian movement how it went by the power of the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It traces the, the movement of the Spirit through God's people as more and more hear the Word as they're transformed by the Gospel and follow Jesus plugging into Christian communities called churches. And so we find ourselves in chapter 18 where we're picking up this morning, Paul the Apostle is on his second missionary journey through Asia Minor preaching the Gospel making disciples, and planting churches. He's living the mission-centered life. And the first thing we see from our text is that his mission-centered life is ordinary. The mission is ordinary. Look with me at our text, Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul had just spent time in Athens preaching to the Areopagus right before this. And when he's dismissed from there, it says that he heads to Corinth. And what's it say the first thing he does is? Does he gather everybody from the town and start a big tent revival? Right? Does, he, does he get his sign and his bullhorn and start preaching on the, the street corner in Corinth? No, what's it say he does? He makes friends. He gets a job. And he goes to church. It's a pretty ordinary plan, isn't it? For Paul, the key to living on mission starts and revolves around ordinary relationships. For Paul, mission is ordinarily relational. He meets Aquila and Priscilla through a mutual job opportunity. He ends up living with them. He goes to the synagogue with them. 
Paul recognizes here that the, the key to living on mission is being in relationship with people. It's having friends. It's being with your neighbors. It's sitting in the bleachers of your kids' games. And look at the couple Paul meets, Aquila and Priscilla. What do we know about them? Our text says that they're tent makers by trade. They take Paul in and they work together. Text also says that Aquila was a native of Pontus, but they just come from Italy under the dispersion of Claudius. And so what we have is this couple who started out in Pontus, they made their way to Italy, they were kicked out of Italy and ended up in Corinth. And as we read 1 Corinthians, we know they go to Ephesus. And then Romans tells us they end up back in Italy. And so again, we see that this couple who the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans calls co-laborers in Christ use their ordinary day job. They use their ordinary circumstances. They use their ordinary locations to live on mission for Jesus. I think this is important for us to notice. For some of us, God calls us to a place and we settle there and we plant roots. Building relationships makes sense and even comes somewhat naturally. But for some others of us, and I'm, I'm thinking about our college students here this morning or, or our families who are facing a geographical change. This was my situation when I was in the military. Being more transient can cause us to, to withdraw from building those deep relationships. Right? It can cause us to be, to be hesitant in seeing the places God has us right now, as short-term as they are, as opportunities to know and love people. But this text shows us that we can trust and treasure where Jesus has us now, as long as it might be, to live ordinary, relational lives. See, more than anything, what we see right away in our text this morning is that the mission God calls His people on is quite ordinary. One pastor has made this observation. The vast majority of Christians have not been helped to see that who they are and what they do every day in schools, workplaces, or clubs is significant to God. Nor that the people they spend time with in those ordinary contexts are the people God is calling them to pray for, bless, and witness to. He goes on to say, we have simply not been envisioned, resourced, and supported to share the good news of Jesus in our ordinary context. See, friends, Jesus is inviting us to see how the ordinary places, the ordinary relationships, the, the ordinary activities we do every day are extraordinary opportunities to be on mission for Jesus. There's one person in our, we call it community group, I think you guys call it life group, who does this particularly well. She's a mom to, to three young kiddos, and so she's naturally spending her time at parks around other moms, and she does such a great job recognizing that in this moment, this season of life, the mission field God has called her to is at the playground. And I can't tell you how many times she's introduced me to someone she met at the park on the bench as her kids were out playing. This is how I believe we can inhabit as a church our call to be mission centered starts with recognizing that mission comes through relationship in the ordinary aspects of our life that we're already doing. So here's the reality this morning. None of you want me to stand up here and give you another thing to do, to add another thing to your busy lives and your busy calendars, right? Quite frankly, I think that's why most of us who would say, I'm not very good at this mission-centered thing, aren't doing that because we think it's another thing we have to do. It's another thing that we need to sign up for. It's another thing that we need to try and fit in. 
But what I think God is calling us to see is that we simply live in the ordinary common places He already has us, and we see those as mission fields. God's mission moves through all the ordinary places we live, work, learn, and play as we seek to build ordinary relationships with people and be intentional with the gospel. That's the second aspect of God's mission that we see in this passage. It's not just ordinary, but it's intentionally gospel-centered. A phrase that that I often read and and hear thrown around when we're having missional conversations is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You've probably heard it. It says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. This is a, a, a great sentiment and has some truth to it, which we're going to get to as we look at mission being communal. But, but to think that we can preach the gospel without using words is a mistake. The gospel is a proclamation of victory. It's the oral message that King Jesus has come. He's lived the perfect life we were meant to live as image bearers of God. He died the death for sin. We deserve to die. He was resurrected from the dead to show He held power over all sin and death. And He's been exalted as the ruling, reigning King of all things. And His greatest desire is for all peoples to know Him and submit to Him. To preach or to proclaim that victory without using words is impossible. Now, that's not to say That our lives should not be attractive and inviting as well as accompany this message with consistency. But as we build relationships with people and we care for them, we should aim to intentionally look for opportunities to share the good news of the risen King Jesus with them. Look at our passage, verse 4 and 5. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks... When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. The mission for Paul, and I think it's fair to assume it was the same for Aquila and Priscilla, was to share about Jesus with those they were building relationships with. The ordinary aspects of relationship building only becomes mission as it is intentionally pointing to Jesus. What that means is we could have all the friendships in the world and we could love our neighbors beautifully. But if we never open our mouths and proclaim the victory of Jesus over sin and death, those relationships as good and beautiful as they are won't bring about eternal fruit. They won't advance the mission Jesus has invited us into. See, Paul was seeking to persuade people to believe in Jesus by testifying that He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. What Paul was saying to his Jewish friends was the one thing that they had been anticipating and looking for more than anything else in the world was Jesus. For a Jew in Paul's day, the Christ was the solution. The the Messiah was the answer and hope to all of life's struggles. And Paul was pleading with them to see Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. And the reality is, if we've been around church for a while, that that language makes sense to us, right? It it resonates with us. That Jesus is the Christ is language, some of this language that we started the sermon with, right? We understand it, maybe others don't. 
but this language that we might understand, but it, but it becomes so much more powerful. It becomes so much more applicable when we think about it in the context of today. If Paul was relating in the same way to his friends, not in Corinth, but here in Fort Collins, how might he say the same thing? First, I think he'd be a good listener. Paul had grown up as a Jew, and so he knew the significance of the promised Christ to his Jewish friends, but in our culture, he would need to be a good listener and try and hear what the longings and the aspirations of his friends were. What was it that they were putting their hope in? Where were they turning, looking for the deepest satisfactions of their souls? For his friends in Corinth, it was the promised Christ. For his friends in Fort Collins, it might be financial security. It might be the approval of people on a sports field. It might be dependence on a spouse or a significant other, but as he listened and heard them through deep relationship, he'd be ready to help them see that what they were looking for, what they were pursuing, what they were trusting in could only truly be found in Jesus. Christian author Bruce Marshall wrote, the man who rings the bell at the brothel unconsciously does so seeking God. What's Marshall saying here? What he's saying is the fundamental movement of every human heart is to seek God and the peace, hope, joy, and satisfaction that only He can bring. Every one of us, apart from Christ, is seeking a functional Savior. Someone or something that will deliver us from whatever we think our perceived hell might be. That means if, if hell for you is being alone, your functional Savior is companionship. And you will pursue not being alone with all you have. If hell for you is having to deal with the reality of this broken world, your functional Savior will be anything that dulls or numbs you from the pains and pressures of this life. See, the reality is when we chase after our functional Savior, we're actually chasing after God whether we realize it or not. While Paul is testifying to the Jews that the Christ is Jesus, we get to testify to those around us that what they're longing for in the deepest parts of their soul is Jesus also. One author calls this gospel fluency. It's the ability to hear and understand the needs and desires of, of people and offer them the hope of Jesus no matter what that need or desire is. And like learning a language, it takes practice. It takes patience. But, but as we seek to love our friends well, we're ready with the gospel. This does not mean we look to, to just ram it down their throats the first opportunity that we get, but it does mean that we have an intentional mindset that we're, we're listening for opportunities to help them see that, that Jesus is the only one that can fill that God-sized longing in their heart. And in our cultural moment, I think it's important for us to recognize that, that speaking with gospel fluency is community, communicating clearly for Jesus. And it's communicating clearly for people coming to know Jesus and, and believe in Jesus and, and trust Jesus, which I think is different than communicating all the things that we're against. As our culture becomes more and more post-Christian, as it becomes more and more immoral, it's easy for us to have the tendency to communicate more 
about the things we're against than for the Jesus that we're for. But notice what Paul does in our text. He preaches about who Jesus is, the Christ, and what he's come to do to be the Savior. And we have to keep in mind here, Corinth was the most most debauched city in the Roman Empire. There was plenty of immorality for Paul to speak out against. There was plenty happening around him in Corinth that he would have been fundamentally opposed to. But what do we see him communicating to the unbelievers around him? The beauty and promise of who Jesus is for them as the people of Corinth. And so as Paul was on mission, building relationships, introducing people to Jesus, he was consumed by speaking for Christ, not against the issue of the day. I think we need to heed that example this morning. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, do we care more about our friends adopting the very same view we have on schooling choices and politics and any other issue? Or do we care more about them experiencing the life-changing grace of Jesus and trusting Him to inform their thinking on those topics? Might we be a people marked by our love and care for those in our lives? And might that love and care be consumed by the desire to tell them about how amazing our Savior is. So we build relationships in all the ordinary places that we live, work, learn, and play. We seek to be intentionally gospel-centered. It's as important in deed as it is in word. Right? We can undo the gospel we proclaim with the gospel that we live. Living on mission is a beautiful dance of gospel proclamation and gospel culture. Gospel living, right? It's, it's the truth in the St. Francis of Assisi quote, our lives should demonstrate and be in step with the gospel we cling to. And what we see is that best occurs on mission in community. It's our third point. God's mission for His people is communal. It's communal. Look, look back at our passage with me. Scan it just really quickly. Do you notice all the names Luke records in these 11 verses? Some are kind of hard to say. There's seven names mentioned in this one short passage. Now, one of those names is Claudius, the emperor of Rome, who kicked out all the Jews, so we're not going to count him. But otherwise, there's, there's six names in this short little passage. And what we begin to see was for Paul, the mission he was on from God was not just ordinary, and it wasn't just gospel-centered, it was also a team effort. It was communal. He lived and worked with Aquila and Priscilla, building relationships, speaking in the synagogue together. Then we see Silas and Timothy show up. They do. Paul's even more free to preach the gospel to the Jews of Corinth. After some time, he gets kicked out of the synagogue. It turns out that the Jews didn't really like hearing that Christ was, or that Christ was Jesus. But it opened up more opportunity for Paul with the Gentiles, it says. And he goes to the house of Titius Justus. And then Crispus gets saved. And his whole household comes to faith. And they join the community. It's it's amazing. For Paul, mission is communal. So what I believe Paul understood and modeled through his life of mission was that through ordinary relationships, as he built those those relationships, he's ready to, to speak a gospel word if the opportunity presents itself. But he sees that mission is best done in the gospel, in the context of a gospel community. Right? Where, where the lives of that community get to put on display the loving kindness, grace, and mercy of the gospel that we believe. 
Jesus told his disciples that the world will know that you are indeed my disciples by the way that you love one another. He then prayed in John 17 that those who believe in the gospel may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. For both Jesus and Paul, the Christian community is a vital part of how the gospel is communicated. We absolutely open our mouths as we have the opportunity, but the way that our friends, families, co-workers, and neighbors will experience the gospel, the way they'll taste and see the gospel, the way they'll touch the gospel is as we invite them to be in community with other believers besides ourselves. One of my favorite parts of, of community group, and I'm sure many of you might agree, is when someone from our group invites a new friend to one of our gatherings. Someone who's maybe never even been a part of a church at all. And it's, it just it warms my heart. It's so cool to see when a member of our group trusts our church and our gathering enough to bring their unbelieving friend into our midst. But what that also does is it takes the pressure off the person in the group who brought that friend. Right? Mission, mission's communal. And so the care of this friend becomes a team effort. We're better together. We're able to all love this unbelieving friend together. And so as new people join our communities, we have more opportunities to share the gospel with them, to, to put on display the love of Jesus that he's given us for one another. And it becomes this whole new network of relationships where they get to see Christian community in action. And then here's another cool part of mission being communal. As a community, we get to help steward the ordinary relationships we have together. That's what that means is if, if you're not quite comfortable sharing the gospel with that neighbor yet, as you invite them into gospel community, you can rejoice and trust knowing someone in that community will, at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way, speak the gospel reality to your friend. It's amazing to think that we can build a community standing in the gap of each other's weaknesses as we seek to live intentional lives of ordinary communal mission. You know, as I've been thinking through what a biblical view of mission looks like, I've, I've often had this picture of, of a rope made of three different strands. Right? One strand of the rope is, is making these ordinary relationships. It's leveraging the places that you live, work, learn, and play to get to know people, to make friends, to build relationships, and care for them personally. And then the, the second strand of this rope that's, that's woven together is gospel centricity. It's gospel fluency. It's, it's being intentional to listen for the ways that your friends are, are desperately seeking Jesus, whether they know it or not, and offer them the hope that the gospel provides. And then, finally, the third strand is community. It's recognizing that as we build a relationship, we can invite those people into gospel community so they can experience the tangible love of Jesus. And like with any rope, if you take one strand by itself, it loses its strength. It only works best when all three strands are woven together. And, and here's the thing. These three strands do not need to happen in any specific sequence. Rather, as we seek to live missionally, our lives should include all three strands of the rope. Often all three may be happening at once. To know where one starts and the other stops is impossible to tell. But what's most important is to know that we are intentionally looking to implement ordinary relationships, gospel-centeredness, and community in our missional lives. Our passage takes a turn now. Right? As, as important as those three things are, 
there's an element of biblical mission this passage points to that supersedes everything we've talked about so far. We've looked at biblical mission being ordinary, being gospel-centered and communal, and the emphasis has been upon what we do. But there's an element of mission that we see in our passage that we must understand if we're ever going to be effective missionaries, and especially if we're ever going to be joyful missionaries. Our fourth and final point is this. This mission that we're called to is supernatural. It's supernatural. The most important aspect of biblical mission is for us to understand that this is Jesus' mission. I think we can put pressure on ourselves. We, we lose joy and we become prideful when we think that God has given us this mission and it's up to us to carry it out. We're the army rangers that need to get to the front line and save Private Ryan and it's up to us and we don't know who's in the back and we got to go. But what we see from our passage is that this mission is not ours. It's the mission of Jesus. He's the one who ultimately holds that three-strand rope. He simply invites us to take part in what he's already doing in supernatural ways. Look at verse 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Jesus tells Paul that he need not fear the retaliation of the Jews in Corinth because Paul is taking part in his mission. And he has people in Corinth. Let that sink in for a moment. The enthroned, ruling, and reigning king of the universe tells Paul that he has people in that city that still need to hear. And so don't worry. Keep on building relationships. Keep on speaking the gospel. Keep on inviting them into community. Because when it's my mission, it can't fail. I have people there. And it's my mission, Jesus says. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that today. As we seek to love our neighbors, we seek to love our kids, our kids' friends and their parents, as I seek to build ordinary relationships and love people and share the gospel, invite them into our community, I need to know that my efforts are not in vain. I need to know, you may as well, that it's not up to me or you. That my care for these people, the love I have for my neighbors, pales in comparison to the love that Jesus has for them. And at the end of the day, I plant, someone else waters, but Jesus brings the fruit. And for those of us who have been called to this mission, that's good news. See, friends, there are people in your lives that still need to know that they are Jesus' people. Now, this vision Paul had was unique to his situation. I think it would be inappropriate for us to think that based on Acts 18, 9, and 10, we can just overlay that on our lives and everything said here is going to be said true of us. Right? We, can, we can't expect the exact same promise and results from Jesus that he makes to Paul, right? or that what God promised to Paul in this moment is an identical promise to us. We're not promised that. But there is a promise that we can cling to here. It may not be that we need to stay where we are for one year and six months. It may not be that you'll never get retaliation against your gospel message. 
But there is a promise, and it's this. Jesus is with us. He tells Paul in this vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. That is a promise that we can claim for ourselves. In fact, it's a promise that we've been made also by Jesus. In Matthew 28, in the passage known as the Great Commission, Jesus invites his disciples to join his mission by saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, friends, that's as much an invitation for you and me as it was for the disciples that heard it that day in Jerusalem. It's the mission of the church. It's the mission that the crossing has been invited into to make the real Jesus known in all the ordinary places that you live, work, learn, and play. And through community, He's with us supernaturally as we do it. And here's the beauty. It's Jesus' mission. But He's graciously and generously invited us to take part. And as we do so, He's with us. He's with us. There's no greater comfort for God's people. And that's the the promise of, of the Lord's table that we're going to take in a few moments. We gather in community every week to remind ourselves and each other that through the Gospel, we were rescued through His mission. And now we're invited into that mission. And He's with us every step of the way. You're not an orphan. You're a son. You're a daughter. You've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies through Jesus, and He's with you. As He commissions you to go from here, in the places you live, work, learn, and play, as you seek to speak the gospel and invite your friends into community, He's with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the mission of Jesus. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we might receive His righteousness. And we rejoice this morning that we've been saved through that mission and we've been invited into that mission. That we can live our lives knowing that You are with us. You are directing us. You are guiding us. Would we have your eyes, and your heart to see the people that are around us? And would you give us ears to hear the places that they're longing for peace and hope and joy that only you can provide? And would you give us mouths to speak the reality of the Gospel that King Jesus is the one who saves? And God, would we do it in community? Arms linked together, ready to receive those who are not your people and invite them into the kingdom of God. We're so grateful for your word that shapes our understanding. May we see mission as this beautiful invitation that you invite us into and empower us to go out on. We love you and we praise you. It's in the name of King Jesus we pray. Amen.